morning, everybody. It's, it's been nine weeks. This is the ninth week in the series. Um, how many of you have been here for every one of those? Okay, so you, you'll remember Ben's taught some. Uh, Ali, I'm sorry, Meredith had a student takeover. Ali, you didn't do any of them. No, okay. Um, Rob Capel, uh, Midtown Campus Pastor was here. Matt Reynolds was here. Lee Lopez was here. Um, and so we have walked through all seven letters. Last week, the letter we looked at was the letter to the Laodiceans. And this week, what I'm going to try and do is summarize all seven letters. And uh, what I also did last week was I asked you if during your time of prayer at the end of the service, during your time of prayer during the week, if you had a sense that God was saying something in particular to the church in Marietta that you would e email that to me or share it with me. And some of you handed me things um, at the end of the service after a time of prayer. Some of you sent emails, some of you sent texts. And I'll come back to um, how I've kind of assembled that a little later. Uh, but I want to start by reading um, from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And so uh, it's going to be on the screen. You can follow along there. I, John both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. And so remember that John's been exiled. He's been put on this island because of the word of God. And it's in that context that he writes, on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I wonder what that sounded like. Imagine you're facing one way and you're in the spirit. You're praying, maybe you're just contemplating spiritual things and you hear this voice behind you and you have to, you have to turn around. Whichever way you're facing, at some point you have, to, you have to turn around and recognize perhaps that this way needs to yield to the voice that's coming from another direction. John turns around and he hears this trumpet. He's trying to describe what the voice sounded to him like, so it's not quiet. It doesn't seem, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches which were in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so ponder that for the moment. John is in a physical place He's in an actual island that, that exists. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So think about that phrase for a moment, in the Spirit. What does that mean, to be in the Spirit? You can be in a place, but you're in the Spirit. So you're in the island of Patmos, but you are in the Spirit. You're in Grace Marietta, but you're in the Spirit. You're in your house, but you're in the Spirit. You're in your place of work, you're in your car, you're at the gym, you're walking down the street, you're walking on a trail, you're lying in bed at night, you're watching television, but you're in the Spirit. Now the phrase appears also in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2, where John there says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, he sees then a throne set in heaven, and he sees one set on the throne. So it's telling us that, that to be in the Spirit means that wherever you are physically, you are seeing something spiritual. You're seeing something that is not earthly, that is heavenly. So John is on the island of Patmos, but he's seeing into the heavenly realm. It's as if the heavenly realm, whatever curtain, whatever veil that closes that, opens and he sees in there. And so in Revelation 4-2, he sees 
Jesus sitting in heaven on a throne. But this time he sees in the spirit Jesus speaking to him and telling him to write a letter to the seven churches. And so the term in the spirit is telling us that there's a revealing of something, something that is otherwise unveiled, something that is otherwise covered is being uncovered and it's of spiritual things. And and if you think about this, this is telling us the importance of, of a heavenly perspective that the spiritual perspective is always important to us. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament in Genesis 28, Jacob sets out on a journey to find a bride. And somewhere on the journey to find a bride, he, he has to rest on the journey and he lays down in this place. And, and it, the Bible says that he uses uh, a, a stone for his pillow. Now, I have a hard pillow, um, but I wonder what that was actually like. And maybe he lodges it in the base of his neck rather than putting his head on it because it's not going to, it's like one of those, the worst Tempur-Pedic pillow you can get. Um, But in any event, the scripture says in Genesis 28, while he dreams, he sees heaven open and he sees a ladder ascending from, uh, from the earth to heaven and he sees angels going up and down on this ladder. And so, 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 and he wakes up and he realizes that he's in this place and he's, I'm just, I'm in this place that I stopped to sleep and somehow God was here and I saw into the heavens. And so John's doing the same thing that Jacob did in, in Genesis 28. And Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, pray, um, thy will be done on where? As it is in heaven. And so he's telling us that somehow there's, there has to be this connectivity between earth and heaven, and that we live on earth, but the important thing is to get a sense of what the will of God is in the heavenly realm, and to pray that the will of God in the heavenly place is done on earth. They will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And, and Jesus, in the process of calling his disciples, when he calls one of the disciples, his name is Nathaniel, I think it's in John chapter 1, verse 51, he says, that you're going to see heaven open and you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so just pause and think about this. It's saying that the Christian experience, and this which will bring me to the first point I'm going to make, is that the heavenly perspective is vital for our earthly, for our earthly experience. The first thing you get when you read all the letters in the book of Revelation is that, is that seeing heavenly, seeing the heavenly thing, seeing the spiritual thing, is vital to living on earth. And so if we go through life and all we have is what we have on earth and what is earthly and what is temporal and what is bound in time and not the eternal, the spiritual, we're missing something. The heavenly perspective alone makes sense of right where we are now. As God speaks to you in the spirit, as you hear what God is saying in the spirit, it alone makes sense of what's going on on earth. And so you see that when Jesus walks on the earth, one of the things he's saying to his disciples all the time is the kingdom of heaven is, is like something. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. He's trying to tell them that, that, that there's this thing called a mustard seed, but I'm going to tell you how this thing that is physical that you can see is somehow like the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to tell them that there's a man that plants a, 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 a pearl in a field or, or there's, there's this that happens or that that happens. And somehow when he starts to tell parables, the purpose of the parable again is to tell us that there's a heavenly realm and a heavenly experience that if we don't get that, we don't understand that, that our earthly experience is somehow lesser. And so Jesus begins to say, not only is the kingdom of heaven present, but it is here and it's among you and it's near you and it's in you. And, and he gives glimpses of the kingdom of heaven and they're all essential because this is the important point. The kingdom of heaven is our ultimate reality. Earth is lesser 
The kingdom of heaven is greater. Earth is the lesser experience. And so as Christians, we're called to be like Jacob. And wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, whether you're in the spirit on the Lord's day or in the most basic place that you live, you're called to be the one that sees heaven open with the ladder ascending and angels ascending and descending, bringing God's messages on the Son of Man because He's the one by whom we have access to see the spiritual and wherever we are on earth to bring that spiritual revelation to the place right where we are. That's my first point. You see, because, because ultimately that's what these letters are. John writes to a church and says, you need the heaven to open so you can see the truth about you. You need the heaven to open so you can see the truth, the fullness of your experience, not the, the reduced lesser experience that earth becomes. And, and, and so always the scripture is telling us to look which direction? Up. Lift your eyes to the heavens, to the hills. The whole of our earthly experience makes to want us to look down. To believe that the earth is the whole of it, that where I plant my feet, where I sit, where I live, how I experience is the whole of it. But instead, John's saying, look up. Get a sense of what God is saying to you. My second summary point is this. Why is the heavenly experience important for us? Because the world cuts in on us. The world cuts in on us. You experience that. You're trying to do something for God, for God. You set off in a path for God. You're doing something that you believe is good, but the world cuts in on us. It's evident in every church that is written to that somehow something of the world has crept in. They started off doing a good thing for God. When was the church ever perfect? Was the church perfect on the day of Pentecost? Maybe for about a minute. <laughs> yeah, because then they're arguing about which widows are not getting fed a couple of minutes later, and then Ananias and Sapphira are keeping back things, and, and that didn't work out well for them, and, and all sorts of other things, and Peter's uh, being told off by Paul later in the New Testament. The church has never been perfect. And the trouble we have is we're always going around just trying to find the perfect church, but this is, I remember a minister once saying, it is, if, if I'm here, it isn't. <laughs> Uh, it's perfect if I leave because then you guys will all be fine. But the point is that you're never going to find the perfect church. And so, and so God knows that we need this heavenly perspective because the world cuts in on us. The world seeps in, it intrudes, it entices us. The world seduces us. The world is alluring. The world is convincing. The world is deceptive and it draws us away from what is God, what is good, to what is false. The world promises us Luxury, freedom, power, riches, fame, glory. Isn't that how it even began for Jesus? Jesus is about to embark on his ministry and what does Satan challenge him with? He challenges him and says that I can give you all the kingdoms of the world, they're mine to give you and I can give you fame and glory and all these things if you'll just bow down and worship me. So do you think that our experience is gonna be lesser than Jesus's? That somewhere in the path that we're walking that Satan is not gonna come to us and say I promise you this or I promise you that. Or I promise you some way that the thing that you're trying to get for God, I can shortcut that. But instead, Jesus doesn't accept his way and persists in God's way. But so we need the heavenly perspective because the world cuts in on us. You look through every one of these letters to the churches and at some point, they're less than they should have been because they've been seduced by the world and they've turned away to living in a way that is not 100% God. And remember, if, you, if you've ever looked through the book of Revelation, um, you'll see in Revelation 12, it seems as if we get another heavenly perspective that might be 
um, how Satan gets cast to earth. It says there is a war in heaven and the angels of God fight against the, the angels of, 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 of Satan and he gets thrown out of heaven and it says his tail sweeps and he takes a third of the angels to the earth with him. And the next word it says is woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe is a bad thing, obviously, right? Because he has come down to you and he's mighty angry because he knows his time is short. So think about that. So on any daily basis, what is Satan doing? Sitting around, drinking tea? But he knows his time is short. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. He's come down because he knows his time is short. So of course, he's actively, the scripture says, because his time is short, seducing and alluring and drawing aside and trying to tempt the people of God away from the things of God to the things of the world, which ultimately are false. And there's this perpetual cycle that, 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 that it goes in. And so, and so it, it, Jesus says the same thing in the parable of the sower. There's a parable of the sower when Jesus is again trying to describe the heavenly things and he says the kingdom of heaven is a little bit like this. A man goes out to sow and he sows seed and some of the seed lands on the ground and the first thing that happens is the birds of the air come and peck it and his disciples when he's in a quiet place say we don't know what you were talking about. And he explains to them that the birds are like the evil one who the second that God says anything are right there to try and snatch it. And so he's telling us that Satan's actively working to stop us having understanding. He's actively working to stop us seeing the spiritual thing because, oh, imagine what happens. You see the spiritual thing. You see the thing that God's called you to and you see it with clarity. What might happen? You might do it. And you might go after it. You might chase it down and you might persist in it. You might change the world. And like that parable says, the end of the parable is this abundance of fruit. And so you know how I'm going to work on them. I'm going to stop them at the point of understanding. Because if they never get it, they never hear it, they'll never yield fruit. They can't start on a journey if they never hear it. So I'm going to sit right next to them. When they hear something, I'm going to distract them with something. When they hear something, I'm going to put something else in their minds. When they hear something, I'm going to tell them, no, it doesn't really mean that. It means something else. I'm going to snatch it away from them so it never goes on to yield fruit. So heavenly perspective is important because the world cuts in on us. And Jesus knows this because even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he takes three disciples with him and says, stay awake with me for an hour, what do they do? They fall asleep. And he knows this. And he says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing. In other words, every one of us wants to do what God wants us to do. But our flesh is weak. So we live in this perpetual place of having a desire to do the good thing for God. But the weakness of our flesh is that we struggle to do the very thing that God wants us to do. So Jesus says, watch and pray. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to what I say because I see what's coming. And my answer, my truth, is your answer to overcoming the temptations, the tests, the trials that the world says so that they don't defeat you. My third summary point as I was looking through the letters is this. So Jesus gives his church his personal attention. So think about this. Heavenly perspective is important. Why? Because the world cuts in on us. And knowing that the world cuts in on us, Jesus just didn't just say, well, then you're on your own. He says, no, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to tell you something that's very specific just for you. Now, we're going to just put some maps up. I just want you to look at this for a little bit. Um, here's some maps of, of where these churches are actually based. Look at, look, at the, look at the location. We saw this one last week. Look at the location in the midst of Turkey. And look how closely grouped they are. And do you see Patmos off the coast there? 
a little purple circle down there, all the brown circles. So we can just jump all the... I, this, this is the only slide we'll need here. We can go straight past this one in a minute. But, um, but that's showing you where they are in the rest of the world. Um, but, but what's important to recognize is there were other churches. There were churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and Galatia and Corinth and Rome and Philippi. And so, so John's not even writing to the entire church. He has a message a specific message based on his location for the church that's quite close to where he is. And so Jesus, knowing the plight, knowing the difficulty they have in struggling with the world, sends a message to John that is proximate to where John is, that is right where they are. And he uses repeating phrases in all of these things. If you look through these letters, he says many times, I know your works. I know you. I know what you're struggling with. I know the good things you do. I know the things that aren't so good you do. Nevertheless, he says in some places, I have something against you. Some other times he says, I've not found your works perfect before God. Sometimes he calls them faithful. Sometimes he says that they've, they've persevered. Sometimes he says they've endured persecution. Sometimes he says that they haven't done that well. But every time the word of Jesus Christ is a personal one to a very specific church, there really isn't a lot similar between all the messages because he writes this to this church and that to that church and that to another church. And he always ends it by saying, let whoever has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in the end, he always says in every one of them, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, he has a promise. To the one who overcomes, he promises something. To the one who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over all the nations. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on my throne. So you realize that what Jesus is doing, is he's not just coming with this terrible word of, of woe and judgment and condemnation, but always bound up in what he says is a promise. If you do what I say, this is how it will work out for you. If you do these things that I've brought to your attention, this is how it's gonna work out for you. And this is my fourth point in summary, is that Jesus' rebuke is good. How many of you like being told off? Didn't see any hands go up. But think about it. If we're never told off, then what do our lives look like? If we go through life and no one ever says that this was wrong and this wasn't quite as right as it should be, and this could have been better, and that was really bad, and you're off course, and you're off track, get back on track. If no one does that to us, where do we end up? See, remember it's Jesus that's speaking, Jesus who is the way, the truth, the life, light, alpha, omega, first, last, beginning, end, the one who was, who is, who is to come. And when he speaks, Revelation 3.19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So what he's saying is if you don't get a rebuke, if you're not told off by God, then he doesn't love you. Think about that, parents, what that says to us. And there's a verse in Hebrews 12, 5 to 13 that says it this way, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. There it is again. It's, his chastening is coming because he loves us. And he scourges. What's a scourge? Wasn't a scourge one of those whips that had metal things in it that they scourge Jesus with and it clings to your flesh and when you rip the whip out, it rips out flesh with it. Jesus does that to those he loves? You're kidding me. 
When's the last song we sang? God, I love your scourging. <laughs> Whip me, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Make the, the metal sharp and rip my flesh, Lord, because I love it when you do that. But we should. We should love the Lord's scourging. We should love it when he chastens us, for it says, every, he does this to everyone he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as children, as sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? That's the word for me as a parent. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and lived? For they, indeed, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. It tells us that the best we do as parents is just the best that we can make up in the moment with the wisdom that God gives us. But God's chastening is so much better than that. So much better than that. So much more perfect. Why? For our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, and we know this, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the purpose of Jesus' word is to chasten his church. Every one of the letters you'll see, eventually he's saying to them that, that hey, come on, guys. The world's cut in on you. And you're not living the way you should live. Therefore, change this, change that. Do this thing that I've told you. My promise is that if you do this, it will work out well for you. And ultimately, this is the purpose of the whole of Scripture. Not just when Jesus speaks in the red letters, but 2 Timothy 3.16, a passage that I'm sure you're all familiar with, says that how much Scripture? All? Just a little bit? Just the letters in red, the words in red? Just the Old Testament, just the New Testament, just Paul, just Peter, just John, just James, just the bits you like, just the bits that you're sure you understand, just the bits that, that, that any of it, all of it, is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. What's that mean? It helps. Profitable. It leads to a good outcome. Something is profitable if it yields a good outcome. For what? For doctrine. And we're going to talk about what doctrine is in just a minute. But what's this next word? For reproof. What's reproof? Reproof is, I, I was just looking up the etymology of the word. Reproof is, is some sort of harsh rebuke or criticism of fault. It's saying that this is wrong. Stop. <laughs> this is wrong. Stop it. This is right. Do this instead. So scripture does that for correction, to correct a course that's not right, for instruction in righteousness, why that the man of God, the woman of God may be, what? Complete. How equipped? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so this is the important thing here. How many of you read scripture? How many of you know what doctrine is? Not the same amount of people who put their hand up for the first one. It's important that you know what doctrine is. Because it says, and we just read that Scripture is important for doctrine. Now, doctrine sometimes sounds like this old theological word that they teach in Bible schools, and once you leave Bible school, you never bother about it again. But my sense of what doctrine means is it's understanding what Scripture is going on about. You can read Scripture, but you don't know what it says. I can read through the whole Bible 50 times, but if I don't get that it's God's story and plan of redemption and the history of God working out that redemption in the earth, I don't understand the themes that somehow are helpful for me. 
Scripture's about doctrine. Scripture's about something that God wants us to get. That's why God has set teachers in the church. But it's ultimately why when we read the Scriptures, we've got to find particular things in it. Because if I just read it, I don't get it. And if I don't get it, I don't get what God's trying to say to me that I can't live by it. If I can't live by it, it's because I haven't understood it, stored it in my heart. And who's the one who's trying to stop us having understanding the whole time? It's Satan is working to stop it. So he's, you can read your Bible later. Well, they're going to read the Bible and let's let them read it all and read it all and read it all and then they're going to close it and shut it and forget what they read. And if we read the Bible and understand the doctrine that it is the history of God working out his plan for redemption in the earth, you'll find bound up in there a whole lot of promises. Now think about what a promise is. If I say to you, Ryan, if you do this, I'll give you a million bucks. And you go away and you do it, I'm going to give you a million bucks. How's that? Okay. Tedrick, I say, if you do this, um, you're going to go home and your house is going to be seven times the size of the one that you left. Somehow, whole neighborhood's going to get demolished. Don't know how it happened. All the compulsory purchase orders, all that legal stuff worked out. You're going to go back. House is going to be huge. Everything you've dreamed of, you and Julie, everything you've seen, imagines it's there if you raise your left hand. Okay. <laughs> you're getting the point. If we read the scripture and we don't get that God's done exactly the same thing, then where are we? If we read the scripture and we don't understand that the scripture is filled with the promises of God, that through the history of God's plan of redemption, God has worked out in his, in his people, then we've got nothing to stand by. And the reason that the promises are there is so that we can endure through trials and tests and temptations. Jesus never says that in this world you will have a perfect life, does he? He says in this world you will have tribulation. He says that the ones, however, that build upon the rock when the storms come, interesting, he says that the storms will come. So Christians aren't prevented from experiencing storms. It's just that after the storm comes and after the storm goes, the one that built and did the things that God said is still standing. That's the promise. If you want to find a wonderful sermon, because it's better than anything I can do here in the next six days, Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, Lloyd-Jones preaches a sermon called The Promises of God. It's all about this. Just look it up. There's an app called the MLJ, um, MLJ Sermons app. Look up, just type in The Promises of God and listen to that. It will enrich your soul as it enriched mine. He takes us all the way back to one of the first promises in the book of Genesis that God has, where after they sin, Genesis chapter three, it says, God speaks to the serpent, the cause of all the mess, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, you ain't gonna get on with the human race for the rest of history. What's it say next? Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. What's it like to bruise the head of a serpent? What's that look like? If a serpent's on the ground and I bruise its head, how's that serpent come off? Not very well. But it says, and you shall bruise his heel. But so the serpent... It's going to bite my heel, but we're going to bruise its head. The first promise in the scripture. Now, if you think about that, what God's saying is, and if you don't recognize that it's God promising this, he's saying that Satan's going to snap at your heels, and he's going to harass you and trouble you and make your life a mess, but at the end of the day, you are going to do what? Yes? Is that not how it goes on? But if you don't know that promise, it's how can we live? And at some point, God floods the earth, but after he floods the earth, what's he say? He says, he sets a rainbow in the sky and says, I will never do that again. Never. 
Another promise of God. And if you want to live life better, you've got to stack the promises of God up. You've got to know what God has said. We live lukewarm because we don't believe God. We don't believe what God has said. And half the time we don't believe what God says because we don't know what he said. We've read the scriptures. We haven't grasped the themes and the, the concepts of doctrine. We haven't recognized that God promised Abraham, I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to show you and I'm going to bless you and make you more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And he did it, didn't he? He says, if you leave your house and your family and your, your children and your occupation, I'm paraphrasing, for me, you'll never come short. He says, seek first the kingdom. Don't live like the Gentiles. Don't do the things they do. Don't look after the things and pursue the things that they want to pursue because God knows you need that. He says, put me first. Seek me first. And he says, what will I do? Everything you have need of, I'll give it to you. So, so God's saying to us, trust me. Take that step in faith. Do the thing I'm telling you to do. And don't worry about how it's going to work out. And we've got the whole scripture when you see the doctrine that shows that that's how it worked out for everybody else. You don't find anybody in scripture who did what God said and it didn't work out for them. The scripture promises us that we're not dead as to the flesh. Do you know what that means? It means that we have no obligation to do what our sinful nature tells us to do. And when the sinful nature tells us to do something, we have to know that the scripture has said and God has promised that we actually don't have to do it. But if by the Spirit you put to death the works of the flesh, the works of the body you will live, God says. We are free to walk in the Spirit. That's the promise. God says that if you pray, if you fast, if you give in a secret place, he'll reward you how? Openly. So try him on this. Pray and don't tell people that you're praying. Give and don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Fast in the secret place. So other people don't know that you're fasting and... Oh, you know, you don't have to come into church like this and they go, what's up with you? Oh, man, man, it's 40 days and I'm, it hurts. Don't let them do that. The scripture says, fix yourself and come in and fast and no one should know, but look for the open reward of God. That's another one of God's promises. This is a lovely one. You ever had a difficult night, but you wake up the next day and it's all as if something fresh has come? Yes? And it's better the next day. It's the promise of God. His mercies are what every morning? New. It's another promise of God. If it hurts, it's too bad at night, go to sleep. <laughs> the Psalms, Psalm David says, I lay down, lay down and I sleep because God's got me. Wake up the next day and feel that new mercy that comes every morning. And, and in Christ, what does the scripture say? We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You see, we can't do battle with the spiritual forces of wickedness if we don't know what God has said. If we don't understand how God has told us all these things, how God has promised us so many things. And so if you came today, and I'm gonna come to talking about the letter to the church of Marietta in just a minute now. But if you came today and you feel as if you're not armed with any promises of God, then go firstly listen to that Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon, The Promises of God, and then start to stack some up for yourselves. Start to say that God said this to me, and there will be times he said things specifically to your family or to you personally. And he's come through, right? Who's had that experience? That God said something to you that wasn't in the scripture, and he's come through on it. We have to tell people about these things. I remember the time when, um, 2007, there was like a, 
40 days left on our uh, visa, whatever we had at the time, can't remember what it was. Um, and the Lord said, clearly to me, you have a lot of time, you have, you have enough time. And I'm like, I haven't got enough time. It says 30 something days that you've got enough time. This is going to be fine. I'm like, it's not going to be fine. <laughs> and he reminded me of a promise earlier. I didn't bring you here that you should perish. But as you stand in faith, I will give you this land. And so it always meant not quitting and not going back. When we came here, we sold our house in the UK because God said, one way. Don't look behind you. I had a habit and a history of going back, so I had to burn the bridges so there was nothing to go back to. Someone told me, rent your house, because if you rent your house, when it doesn't work out, what do you mean when it doesn't work out? Shut up. The Lord said, yeah, yeah. When it doesn't work out, you just throw the renters out and go back. So we sold the house and came one way, and it got tough. And when it got tough, I wanted to go back, but there was nothing to go back to. So we stood. 17 years later, we're still here. But the experience when I found an immigration attorney, and I, she said, send me your documents. And it was that day I faxed it. Remember, we used faxes. Um, and she sent me back something, and she says, well, yeah, the law says that you have that 30-something days plus an extra 60 days grace. In other words, you have time. And then she says, and this, this works. I can see a way for you to stay here. And so stop panicking. And the whole way, there's another thing. As a writer, God told me that as much paper as I write, I'll get by he'll fill. I just ordered my next, I buy, I buy big boxes of reams of paper all the time and God has never failed to fill it with ideas. I've never sat down. Yeah, you know what this is like, Stephen, as a writer. I've never sat down and, 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 and failed to have an idea. I've got more ideas than I can, than whatever get put in anyone's life. It's the promise of God specifically to me. God said another time to us that if you hold nothing back, that's the hard one. I'll give you everything you have in your heart as your desire. It's hard because I remember I found myself in 2004 in a, rec in a music store um, and I felt that it was time to be serious about writing and that meant buying some equipment that was going to cost us like two months worth of income. And I spent six hours in the store, um, Guitar Center, I think it was, down by Windy Hill and then I called my wife and she does what she always does. She said, didn't God say hold nothing back? <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> Didn't say God hold nothing back. I said, Anna, but it's like too much. She said, just get in the store and go buy what you've got to buy. So I went back in the store and I remember going in and saying, I'll have that, 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 that. And they were like ringing bells and saying, this guy, man, he's spending money. I was, I was sick inside, sick inside. But God followed that up and he's backed it up and we have never failed to eat, never failed to pay a bill. Our house money ran out after two years. Two years. I remember going to the end of college and going to one of my professors, and she said, well, you graduated. And remember, the, you sat in my room about 15, 20 times saying, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, I've got to go back. And I reminded you that you've got nothing to go back to, and you're like, oh, no, that means I've got to stay and stand. And God said, if you stand, I'll give it to you. It's the promise of God. Have you got some of those? You have to have them. Because this is what Jesus is saying to the, to the church. I, I promised you this. I promised you this. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, I said this to this person. Fill your heart with promises of God. And so here's what I believe, and this is just my sense of what God might be saying to the church in Marietta. And I thank uh, everyone who sent me something. Becky, you handed me something. Kent, you emailed me. Jessica, you emailed me. Steve, you emailed me something. Uh, my own wife handed me something. Brandon, Emma. Emma, how long ago were you baptized? April, came for the first time, sorry to embarrass you. You got married how long ago? Okay, just married, just baptized, just here. Still had something to say. 
a sense of something that she saw, a community where people's marriages are blessed because those with experience in marriage are helping those whose marriages are new and fresh, a community of God. And, like, and, so, and, 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 and Olu and Shade, you've been here like a couple of minutes. Welcome. Great to have you here. John and Tricia Spickner was hilarious. They both sent me separate emails because they refused to talk to each other because they, they didn't want to influence each other. They wanted to know what the Spirit was saying, and then they talked afterwards. And so what I did was when I got all of those, and some of them were just coming in yesterday, and so that's why I'm sorry, Ali, um, it worked out that we had to do slides this morning. Um, what I wanted to do was I tried to shape them. I, I've summarized them because I wanted to make sure that if I saw that there and I saw that there and I saw that there, then maybe God is saying this. If I saw it once, not so worried about it. Um, it might be of God, but I can't tell you all of it. And so I've summarized and I've tried to do, put them in shape of promises in the first person from Jesus because I want it to sound like something that God's saying to us. Six of them. First one, I will sustain your faith. You like that? God's saying, I will sustain your faith. It's commendable that there is faith in the latter days. Some passage says that when the Son of Man comes, will he still find faith, faith on the earth? The fact that we're here, the fact that we have any faith, the fact that we're gathering in the name of Jesus 2,000 years from when he lived and we never saw him with our own eyes is his miracle. He sustained his church and he will sustain us and our faith. Why? Because of him. He gives faith and he gives faith amidst perilous times in a challenging, hostile culture. If you want to read how the end days are going to be and that's every day after Jesus, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. In the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, it says that humanity will love itself. Is that going on at the moment? That humanity will love money. Is that happening at the moment? That humanity will love pleasure. Is that happening at the moment? 2 Timothy 4, it says that people will prefer fiction to truth. Is that happening at the moment? That we'll, we'll, I, mean, I mean, so let's not be surprised by any of it. That they won't want to hear sound doctrine, that they'll follow their own desires because their ears itch, and because your ears itch, you'll heap up people who tell you what you want to say. Is that happening today? So let's not be surprised by it. The people prefer to follow those who tell them what they want to hear. I will watch this news channel, not that one, this one, that one, that one after seven o'clock on a Wednesday, this radio station. I'll listen to this teacher, that teacher, this. You see how it goes. Why? Because they just please us and because our ears itch. Jesus said this will happen, but he says, I'm going to sustain your faith nevertheless in the midst of this. God is good. Amen. Two, I will not abandon my church. I'm committed to her. I love her. I gave my life for her. I equipped her to overcome the world. I have grace for everything you face. If you're cold, I have grace. If you're lukewarm, I have grace. If you're hot and need to sustain being hot for me, I have grace. God is good. Yes? You can just say amen. Every one of these things, if Jesus is really saying this to the church in Marietta, are these not things for us to celebrate and rejoice in? Three, my church is my community for your strength and encouragement. Ponder that for a little bit. My church, whose? His, ours? If we put our name on it, does it make it ours? If we call it grace anything, does it make it our church? Everybody say no. No, if we call it, Grace Church of the first this and the first first Grace Church of Marietta. Does that make it any better? No. 
the full gospel first grace church of Marietta, according to Christ the Redeemer. Does that make, us, make it our church? No, it doesn't. But why do we do that then? Because we think it's ours and it's not ours, it's his. But this is the point. It's the community that God has assembled for our strength and our encouragement. There is a wonderful sermon. I'm going to keep referring to great sermons that have blessed me. A guy called Mark Hanby preached a sermon called Waters in the, Gar- Waters in the Garment. And it's wild. And he speaks about how the presence of God in the Old Testament was, was in the tabernacle. And then how the presence of God in the Old Testament a little later on is in Solomon's temple. And then the presence leaves the temple. And the presence of God in the New Testament is where? In Jesus. In Jesus. And so there's a point at which a woman who's bleeding comes and does what to Jesus' garment? She grabs hold of his garments and scripture says that Jesus feels power go out from him and he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, no one touched you. I mean, he said, no, 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 something. Someone grabbed me and the faith that they grabbed my clothes with drew something from me that healed her. And he knew it happened even though there was a crowd. And Jesus is no longer the one that is the presence of God on earth. Who is it? It's us. It's God's community. And so you see the imagery there. If you think that through, and I'm summarizing a brilliant sermon, well, that person that preaches is saying that the healing, sorry, Tedrick, I'm going to have to come grab you, that when I need healing, what do I do? I leave the church, and I find another church. When I need healing, I don't have fellowship with Tedrick. No, it means that when I want healing, what do I do? Tedrick, yeah? Help me. Then my healing is when I grab you and you grab you and you grab you and you grab you and you have fellowship with you and you draw closer to you and rather than pulling back, we get closer and we take something from each other because we believe that the power of God who lives in us, God is greater in us than he is in the world is somehow there's healing in us for one another. And so you see that when we faction off and we separate out and we go to other places and we, and we break because someone upset me, so I'm leaving and another person upset me, so I'm leaving and then you go down the road and they accept you for a minute and then you leave there a minute later. I've done it, we've all done it. Or maybe you haven't. But Jesus is saying, my church is my community for your strength and encouragement. We will live stronger lives. Better families, better marriages when we press into one another, when we share the things that we are failing in and the things that we are succeeding in, when we share the gems of encouragement. It shouldn't just be me. Every one of us should be doing this. We shouldn't just meet on a Sunday. It's impossible. The world is cutting in on us too much for us to meet once a week like this and for me to talk to you and for you to sit and listen to me. You've got to be with one another on a daily basis. This was the thing they got right in the early church. How often did they meet in their homes? Every day. The strength and the encouragement is packed into the community that is the church of God that he's put in the earth for our encouragement, for our support, to share the practical experience so that we can have transformational living together. So we have to move beyond disunity. We have to move beyond our separation. We have to move beyond our hiding, our quitting, our differences to unity. The healing is in the body. And who is the body? We are. Part of it. Not all of it. Our brothers and sisters at Johnson Ferry Baptist are part of the body. Some of our healing may be in someone there. Our healing may not come apart from fellowship and unity with that. There's a church next door. Anyone know what it's called? All right, St. Catherine's. What denomination? We don't care. Okay. But you get the point. That ultimately this devil that comes down to the earth who knows his time is short is like, God, if they get together... If they work out that the healing's in the body, if they work out that there are promises in the scripture, 
So I'll just keep them reading the scripture if they must. They ain't going to understand what it means because I'm going to snatch it like the bird and the seed and I'm going to faction them off and convince all of them that their theology is more right than somebody else's. So they're going to split and split and split and split. I remember in church history, the Baptist denomination, God help everybody, right? I mean, the Baptist denomination, I understood, started over how baptism took place. And so these two guys separate off to start the first Baptist church and then they have this dilemma. Well, who, who baptizes who? <laughs> you, me, or me, you. I mean, we get this wrong. <laughs> you see how silly it all is, but it's that mad. The whole of the history of the church. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that sound like a promise? It does. Spin it the other way. With me, you can do everything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, anything. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember that. He's promising us that if we abide in him and his word abides in us, that we can ask anything, do anything, not anything in that we're gonna, we're gonna, you know what I'm talking about, but good godly things, the things that he puts in our heart, we can accomplish in him. So we're called to be less Martha. You know the story of Martha and Mary. Jesus is at the house and one's just in the kitchen cooking and cleaning and doing stuff. The other one's just sitting at his feet and the one who's sitting at his feet gets criticized. Um, which is Mary. We're called to be more like Mary, I believe. Less busy, more intimacy, more rooted and grounded than him. Buy the gold from him. How do you buy gold from him? You've got to hang with him. Less busyness, less fast living, less arguing about things that are irrelevant, more love, less fables, less semantics, less idle talk, less human constructs and arguments that seem wise but aren't wise, more love, less criticism, more less judgment, more mercy. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world that I made you to be. My community. Two more. I think God's saying to us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that for a moment. The scripture says, I think in two places, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that the eye is never satisfied with seeing. Never. So that means if we're looking around for stuff to satisfy us, will it ever work? No. But Jesus instead says that godliness with contentment is great gain. So in other words, be content with me. I am enough. I'm sufficient. I am the best thing to accumulate. Contentment is the best thing that you can go after. I was in Target with my wife a week ago. And I'm like, how can anybody choose anything in a store like that? I want to, we were just trying it out. We went down the aisle and I said, so say I wanted a, a rug. There were like 50 rugs. That's before I get on Wayfair. Who knows about Wayfair? <laughs> and before I get on Amazon and before I get on anywhere, how can he ever choose a rug? And when I get a rug, it's like, well, there was that other rug. <laughs> and so, you know, or a car or anything, Yeah. I've got to confess to you all, this is my terrible sin at the moment. My son just bought a car that made me jealous. Yeah, I feel dissatisfied that my grown-up dad car is just not cutting it anymore. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, but that's how we're led because the Scripture promise isn't in me that says the eye's never satisfied with seeing. Blake, how much bougie water can we find? I love Pellegrino, but... I can go on a quest to find a more expensive bottle and, and brag about it and another one and the, the, the minerals in 
um, Aquafina or whatever it is and stuff and so on and forth. It's bound up in us. Recognize it. And our world is cutting in us the whole time. The whole way the world is set up is to make us unhappy, to make us permanently discontent with the thing that we have. And the scripture says, Jesus says to us, be content with what you have. That is great gain. When you look at what you have, say, thank you, God. You are good that I have anything, that what I have, I have. I praise you for it. I thank you for it. I rest in it. I don't look for one more thing. And I'm satisfied with the rug or the dress or the suit or the shoes or the car or the house or the job or the husband or the wife or whatever. And even the kids. I'm happy and I'm content. And this is great gain. I can't earn one more thing that's good for me than what I have. I am enough, Jesus says. Psalm 23. Anyone know what Psalm 23 says? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. What does that mean? I shall not want for anything. I have no lack. I have everything I need. Some other translations says it, say it that way. Let me wrap up with this last one. I think Jesus says to the church in Marietta, I am good. In every one of these things, he sustains our faith because he's good. He won't abandon his church because he's good. He's given us community for our strength and encouragement because he's good. Apart from him, we can do nothing with him, anything because he's good. That we can be content with him because he's good. And he says to us, I think, my promises are trustworthy because I am trustworthy. I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. Look that up. It's in, it's in um, 2 Peter 1 verses um, 3 to 4. Because it says this, this divine power has given us everything we need to live godly lives. Through which we have these abundant promises all over Scripture. So go find them. If we want to live godly lives, fill your heart, your mind, your family, your walls with the promises of God. Tell them to one another all the time. Say, God said this. God did this. God did this. If you do this, God's going to come through. If you do this, God's going to come through. God is good. This is how we live, and this is how we encourage each other. That's why the healing is in the body. So take hold of one another's garments and find the healing in your brothers and sisters. When you want to quit this place, don't. Because someone upset you. Grab someone's clothes and say, I ain't going nowhere. You throw me out. You can kick me out. You can put my name in the door and a picture of me in the door and I'm still coming here. How many of us want to live godly lives? Meaningful lives. Lives that make a difference in this world. God is good. His salvation is great. So trust Him. Look to Him. Commit to Him. And don't be afraid to do so. Only way I could think of closing was just to sing about the goodness of God, if that's okay with you. Um, pause for a minute. We're going to take communion a little later. Um, the band is up there now. Um, there's a song about the goodness of God. Um, would you stand with us, please, as the band leads us?